Hello, late night listeners. Uh, this is Brian, and I wanted to let you know that we have a Patreon. It's a really fun thing. It's a great way to support the show, and it gets you access to all kinds of exclusive stuff. We have exclusive mini episodes. We have videos of me, for example, writing music for various things of the show. Leighton's doing all sorts of stuff, and it's just a really fun community. You also get access to our Discord if you sign up for our $5 a month tier or up. So uh, if you like the show and you like what you hear, please check us out over on Patreon. It's really a great way to to support us. Thanks so much. And enjoy Late Night with Brian Wecht. It's my Don Pardo impression. Hey everybody, it's Brian. Before we really get into the episode, I did want to let you know that there is a brief mention of self-harm around the 13 and a half minute mark. So if that kind of thing upsets you, please skip past that. If you skip around 15 minutes, that'll get past it for you. All right, so have fun. It's a great episode, a really fun guest. Enjoy. I have a thing that I'd like to start with because I received a very, very exciting email today <laughs> that, I, that I just texted to Brian. Gannon, this is right up your alley. I am braced. When we book people for this show, it's usually us reaching out to people and being like, will you come on our podcast, please? And so we've never had anybody approach us to be like, hey, I would like to be on your show. So today I received this email, <laughs> subject line, guest available for interview flat earth expert excellent <laughs> from hello at the flat earth podcast.com <laughs> dear Leighton, hope this message finds you well i recently came across your show Leighton night with brian wecht and would like to ask if you'd be open and available to having mr as a guest interview to discuss the topic of flat earth it has been featured twice and then parentheses two times <laughs> on <laughs> sam dribbley's tinfoil hat alex jones's Infowars, and owen benjamin along with numerous other shows and then it's a bunch of links to videos that I watched of him talking about Flat Earth. And it's like piano music, him talking to podcasters who are all like, you're really blowing my mind right now, man. Like, I'm convinced. Oh. <laughs> so, uh, got to book him immediately. Why would you, if you're trying to get on a podcast, be like, and I was on InfoWars? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, hi, please take me seriously by looking at all this mad shit that I'm about to link you to. <laughs> Paul, are you aware of InfoWars? Is that a thing you know about? I am aware of InfoWars. It bleeds across the internet. You can't not get your hands covered in its blood at times. <laughs> to us, Alex Jones is almost a caricature, like a puppet, a cartoon character that we sit back and kind of laugh at. But I'm sure when it's closer to home, it's a little bit more kind of like an open wound in the nature of the character of your country. Yeah. Oh, it's terrible. We can get back to this Flat Earth guy in a second. The best Alex Jones thing that ever happened, and I'm probably going to get the details wrong, was they, you know, he's been in court several times. And during one of those appearances, they were like, do you actually believe this? Like, legally, you have to say if you believe this. And he said, no, about whatever bullshit he was talking about. <laughs> so, like... He has been documented in court as he's just lying all the time and he knows he is. Didn't he say he was playing a character? Yeah, he said, I'm basically playing a character to sell shit. Wow, what a really shit character. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it's same with Tucker Carlson because there was that lawsuit thrown at Fox where like they straight up were like, yeah, none of this is educational or true. Just so you know, we're lying to you. Very same situation. You get the impression that most news programs should have 
the same uh, paragraph that films end with where no events that took place on in this film based on true events, any names and things that are similar or completely coincidental. It feels like that should be in front of most news these days. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Hey, that's my hot take, by the way. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> We're coming in hot four minutes into the <laughs> yeah. episode. So obviously we have Fox News and other bullshit, a million networks. What's your guys' deal? Obviously I know you have, you know, piece of shit papers like the Daily Mail and stuff like that. Are there televised equivalents? I think that's what it is. I think when it comes to TV, by and large, British TV is kind of, at least attempts to be neutral. ITV, Channel 4, the BBC obviously has to be impartial. Even like Sky News, which is obviously part of the Murdoch empire, tries to, you know, be a respectable news channel in no way, anywhere like the nature of Fox's news output. But it is the tabloids that separate this country. And you got to remember that the most jokey, pathetic, horrible newspaper in the world, the Daily Mail, sadly also happens to have quite a healthy readership still. And now with Brexit, yeah. it's preaching to the choir. So there is this um, separation in the newspapers that kind of wants to reflect the nature of the country in terms of certainly who they're voting for, what constituencies are voting where. So, for instance, The Sun, which is another wretched piece of shit, <laughs> doesn't get sold in Liverpool anymore. Because in the late 80s, or was it mid-90s, a thing called the Hillsborough disaster, where um, 96, oh, I hope I got that number right, football fans died when there was a massive surge of fans and the police lost control. And basically, the newspaper, The Sun, went out of their way to blame Liverpool fans for all the murder and death and anarchy that happened. Mm -hmm. And then in the subsequent reports and uh, investigations, that ended up being completely false. But it was such a slur that Liverpool and its nearby areas said, we aren't stocking the sun anymore, so you just can't buy it in that area. Wow, because they were just so angry about all this bullshit. Yeah, the sun is not a nice newspaper, but again, it falls under the same arm as the Daily Mail. It's all offshoots of Murdoch's empire. And it's interesting because I've started working for a radio station in the UK called Times Radio, and it's a news-based station. And unfortunately, it is owned by News UK, which is Murdoch's thing. But when people look at the station and they say, oh, it's attacking the BBC, it's not so much that Murdoch doesn't want impartial news, I think, and have a stranglehold in that. I just think he has an irrational hatred of the BBC and wants that destroyed. Mm -hmm. He can replace it with his own vision of it. So we're in this weird situation now where we've got this, certainly in the UK, it's leaning towards a more American type of news presentation. And that's where I go. Uh, that's a bit worrying. Yeah. The three years I lived there, we actually never got cable. We never got a TV. Yeah. You missed nothing. Well, exactly, because we just watched everything online anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and you could even watch, you know, BBC stuff online if you just put up a browser. It was very easy for most of the stuff you'd want to see anyway. And we never paid our TV license, by the way. Yeah. Because we didn't have one. Layton, do you know what a TV license is? No. What the hell is a TV license? Ah. So... This is something I was not aware of either. So, Paul, tell me if I'm explaining this correctly. Okay. BBC is a publicly owned thing. It is a utility, basically, that if you're going to watch TV, which basically means you'll be watching the BBC, you need to pay a licensing fee because you are using a public utility. So if you own a TV, any kind of working TV, you have to pay an annual licensing fee of, I forget, I think it's like a hundred something pounds. I can't remember exactly what it is. Yeah. <laughs> you can opt out. You can go online and say, 
I don't have a TV and I don't plan on watching anything live. You can still watch BBC stuff like after it's aired, but I plan to watch nothing live. And then what I was always told, this never happened to us. Occasionally, someone will come around to your place, knock on your door and say, hello, I see that you have not paid for your TV license. I'm here to check to see if you have a TV. Can I come in? And you can say no. And they'll say, okay, thank you. Goodbye. And then leave. So... <laughs> You get a fucking TV audit? <laughs> yeah, think of it like a utility bill. Yeah, yeah. But I was told if they catch you with a TV and you haven't paid your license, it's actually a pretty hefty fine. Yeah, no, they actually have to remove your eyes so you can never watch anything ever again. <laughs> that's where they get the eyes for the iPlayer. Yeah, that's where they all come from. <laughs> yeah. they, they do it on the spot. Yeah. Yeah. Did I get that right, Paul? No, that's pretty much correct. It's interesting, though, because... When you explain it, it does sound weird, but there's loads of pros and cons to it because originally, and this is where my education on media gets spotty, but I seem to remember the story goes that when TVs first came to the UK, the license was there through the post office. It was a service through the post office and the BBC worked together to help spread the thing and to spread the cost. Hmm. It was a fee. So over years, that's developed into this kind of annual fee to pay for the BBC. Now, while that sounds weird, You've also got to remember, like, it kind of gives a lot of democracy to the programming that's made. So, you know, we pay for what we want, and the more money we put in, the better the shows. And so we do have this weird thing where we seem to pay a lot comparatively per year for the BBC. And yet it's not really as much as you'd pay for Netflix monthly. Yes, exactly. But with the BBC, you're getting countless radio stations, mm. countless specialized channels, or all the BBC one, two, threes, and fours, the movie side of things. It's not just you're paying for basically strictly come dancing and Doctor Who and Top Gear. <laughs> but yeah. they also sell. So that's another reason why the BBC needs to make high quality programming. The issue now is with the Netflix model coming in and every single network and content creator in the world creating their own apps and channels for their own content. You get this repeat of like the monopolies of the studio systems. What was it, 1920s, 1930s? And how it was choking. So now the BBC has to step up. Does it change completely how it gets its money and goes for a more Netflix model? Or does it try and cling on to this thing that's worked for almost 100 years? Right. I would imagine the more you have conservative governments in power, the more they want to privatize and get rid of public utilities and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So I would imagine most or a lot of conservatives, let me just say, are pretty anti-BBC anyway because they don't think anything should be publicly owned. Well, the BBC is a weird one because it's damned if it does and it damned if it does. Does, doesn't. I forgot already about what I said. That's really bad start for a sentence. <laughs> um, but it basically it can't win because there's always going to be people who say you've got too many right-wing people on Question Time and too many plants in the audience. Cut to, oh, there's too many left-wing comedians on panel shows and the right-wing comedians aren't getting a voice, so no wonder it's there. So it's either a, a sign of how successful the BBC is that it can still be so polarizing or it's fundamentally going wrong somewhere. Mm -hmm. I think if they're getting complaints from both sides, that's probably pretty good. You're probably doing it more or less right. On and off, I still work for the BBC, for BBC radio station called BBC London. And outside, they have a statue of Orwell. I was thinking of Orson Welles, and I couldn't get his face out of my mind. But yeah, Orwell. George Orson Welles. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> There's a quote on the wall that effectively says, and I'm not going to get this word perfect, but you know, it's the mark of a good journalist to tell people what they don't want to hear. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of the remit of the BBC. It should be that. It should tell you what you don't want to hear because anyone who does do that is probably selling you snake oil. I mean, Fox News. <laughs> yeah, as you may have seen some coverage of this, but now there are even farther right, even kookier sites here called Newsmax and OAN, 
Is that what it is? Yeah. The Onion News Network. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I have a BBC question for you, Paul. Were you around when they did the Ghost Watch thing in the 90s? Oh. Oh, wait a minute. Layton, I did not prime her for this, by the way. Okay. Oh, excuse me. Are we about to get some juicy information here? Well, you're speaking to an expert. I am a reasonable expert on something that does not exist. So it's great productive use of my time. Uh, but I've managed to get some mileage out of it professionally. So win, win. <laughs> But, I mean, I was too young. I was 13 when Ghostwatch came out, because that was 93, I think. 91, I think. This is actually a great place to introduce ourselves, even though it's earlier than we typically do in the show. Hold on. Sorry, Brian. This feels premature. We're not an hour into the episode with the listeners <laughs> completely adrift with who our guest is. <laughs> Everyone, this is Layden. Hi, that's me. I'm a goblin woman. The voice that you just heard was Brian Wecht. What's up? And mystery guest. Do you care to introduce yourself? Hello, my name is Paul Gannon, and I do weird things online professionally. So in the context of what Leighton was asking about, can you talk about what your qualifications slash credits are <laughs> in the ghost department? This is a job interview now. Yeah, it is. It just feel like it. All of a sudden, <laughs> started getting palpitations and my hands are sweating. What would you say are your five worst qualities, Paul? Oh, uh, the grass is always greener for me. There's always something better around the corner. I'm reasonably selfish at times. I don't take risks. Uh, I can't please women in bed, and I have a problem with cheese biscuits. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> great answers. That was five, right? Because I could go on. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I think we have the same five, actually, just like identical yeah. <laughs> five. So the potted version of my kind of life is I started out uh, writing comedy for the BBC. I was writing things like Dead Ringers and those weird kind of Radio 4 satirical shows that weren't particularly funny. Um, and then I did stand up for a year, a couple of years. And then I moved to America for a few years. And then I came back to London for a few years. And then I basically, very long story short, decided to commit suicide. And through my rehabilitation of trying to sort my life out from that kind of low point, um, I took up a hobby. I was kind of living a pretty unhealthy social life. And that hobby was ghost hunting. And I decided to go ghost hunting because I love Ghostbusters. It's the best thing in the world and I love it. I was a big fan of the burgeoning genre of paranormal reality TV, which in the UK kicked off with a show called Most Haunted. And then they began to take the format of those shows and make them into kind of tourist events. So for about £50, you can spend the night in a haunted location with a team of quote-unquote professional, quote-unquote ghost, quote-unquote, Hunters, quote unquote unquote um <laughs> and you get to play with all the gadgets that you see on the tv show the k2 the night vision goggles the hearing enhancers the rem pods the voice boxes the ouija boards and i got involved with one of the groups who ran one of those evenings and so for about three years i would go around the uk ghost hunting and meeting people and going to haunted houses and crypts and graveyards and castles and asylums and caves and all sorts of weird and wonderful places and then that led to a, a bloody theatre show called Psychic and Science, which basically took the elements that you all recognise from shows like Ghost Hunters and put it on a stage. And so it was like a live stage show where we locked the theatre down and we did Ghost Hunters around the place and experiments. It was a crazy time. And then I turned that into a solo show, which went to Edinburgh and was a massive failure. But... <laughs> but, <laughs> but was very funny and great. Yeah, but, you know, I mean... I was happy that I did it because one of the kind of bucket lists of my life was do a solo show in Edinburgh. And then the box underneath that is I'm financially and socially live to regret that decision. So I did those two. <laughs> and then, then I stopped doing stand-up and I got into podcasting and YouTube stuff. And then it all kind of came around again because someone said, you should turn that thing into a book. So I'm trying to turn everything that's happened in the past, I don't know, 15 years of my life into a book. Wow. 
That's fucking amazing. And you knew none of the ghost stuff when you asked this question about Ghost Watch, right, Layden? I did not. I'll be honest, I never look up guests before the show because I like to be surprised. <laughs> it's also vastly easier to do zero research. Oh, it's so easy to not do research. <laughs> I don't have to know a thing. I just get the Zencaster email, I log on, I do some stupid bits and make friends. So, you know. We have a, a little affirmation exercise that we do backstage before Ninja Sex Party shows where we all get in a little circle and put our hands in and we say together, zero preparation, zero expectations. And then we go do a show. Beautiful. <laughs> Part of my mantra for all like the podcasts and the YouTube stuff is I do. When they say, what kind of work do you do? I say, I like to do very professional, unprofessionalist work. Yes. Yeah. So like, I put a lot of time and effort into making things look really quite shabby and unprofessional. Yeah, it's the expectation versus the reality of the thing. Yeah. Part of one of the things I enjoy about what I do is I, I kind of like when audiences can see the seams or, you know, see the breaks. You know what I mean? I think it brings them in a little bit. Totally. It's humanizing. Yeah, and it's also a legit aesthetic choice. I mean, Leighton is a, certainly an expert in this wearing or like, you know, mm. de-resing, whatever, making things look like they're from the 70s and 80s kind of vibe to stuff. And I feel like that is, first of all, a legit thing now. And second of all, just looks cool. But Leighton, you would say that's a big part of your aesthetic, right? Oh boy, the, the word of having an aesthetic. I mean, yeah, I would say so. I mean, I'm obsessed with obsolete media. And also I think that we peaked with shitty large computers and big chunky keyboards and all like blank VHS tape graphic design. Like society has progressed past the need for gradients and smooth rounded edges and all of this like homogenous postmodernism design. Let's let's take it back. Let's go back. <laughs> Paul and I grew up with this stuff in a way you didn't. Paul Layden is much younger than we are. How dare you talk to me? Oh, sorry. You know what? Much younger than I am. <laughs> I, I judge people by whether or not they were born during Ghostbusters 2 or not. If they were born after Ghostbusters 2, I kind of don't care about your opinion anymore. <laughs> <laughs> when did Ghostbusters 2 come out? 1989. It's easy to remember because the first thing it says is five years later. Yeah. And... Everyone knows Ghostbusters came out in 1984. Easy. What else do you want? Easy. So, Layton, do you want to do an age reveal for Paul? <laughs> I hate every time we do this fucking age reveal, Brian. I love it. I was born in 97. I'm 23. Then this conversation's over. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> my opinion is invalid. Yeah. Don't take it personally. I'll go find the flat earth guy and I'll... Think of my opinions like Logan's run. It's like, once you get to a certain age, I'm done. I'm not interested. <laughs> I think you said the idea was someone being born... During Ghostbusters 2, which I really like the idea of, <laughs> is that there's some pregnant Ghostbusters fan out there who was so excited about the movie that they went into labor, but was like, fuck it, I got to go see this. It wouldn't surprise me. You hear stories across fandom in general where you hear people go the extra mile to have that certain dinner time conversation that you just know always comes up at Christmas about how, oh, you remember when you were born? I tried to keep you in. Well, you know, we found out if Anakin was really going to turn to the dark side and just think, oh, God, mom. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that people should know about you, Paul, is that you are very deep into the Ghostbusters community. I would call you an authority on Ghostbusters, right? Do you know what, though? It's one of these weird things where because of the past few years, I kind of like keep slightly bit of an arm's distance these days to the fandom. Yeah, that's smart. But it's only because it's like when anyone decides to say, I want to be the biggest fan of XYZ, there are a lot of things you therefore have to not have in your life anymore or replace with that thing you're obsessed with. 
And I saw a lot of people fight to get to the top of who was the biggest Ghostbusters fan. There's one guy, and I forget his name. I think it's Peter something or other. But he's this old guy. Venkman. Sorry, the character's name is, is Venkman. No, I, I think I'm going to know that, sir. How very dare you? <laughs> There's basically a super uber Ghostbusters fan who's been with the franchise since like the film. And they would always like ask him to come to showings of things or he went to the red carpet on 89. He kind of became known as the Ghostbusters fan. And then they were making a documentary called Ghost Heads, which is about Ghostbusters kind of groups and, you know, their own franchise that exist around the world and the communities that they build and fandom in general. And there was this kind of backstage kind of discussion going on about these two Ghostbusters fans kind of fighting for screen time <laughs> and how one felt bad because he wasn't invited to the 2016 screening and he felt, you know, that Sony had treated him badly. And it's like, you're just a fan. You don't deserve to be front and center of fandom. And so when all this was going on, and then obviously the 2016 disgusting display of, you know, sexism and racism and hate speech, it was just like, oh, ah, this isn't fun anymore. So I kind of took a step back from it just to kind of yeah. enjoy it because I was beginning to not enjoy it anymore. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I want to enjoy the thing and then fuck off and not see anybody talk about the thing. Like, I'll do some quiet reflection and go about my day. I just want to consume the goddamn content. I don't want it to be a part of my identity. Yeah, there's some healthy love out there. Because when I went to the Ghostbusters fan fest, oh God, two years ago now. Yeah, when you were in town. Yeah, when I was in town. It was great to see so many fans there and the kids there and, you know, generations and the little kids wearing the 2016 costumes and then some fans who came into the fandom through that 2016 film and they all kind of got on nicely you know, there was a very strange moment when Paul Feig, Ivan Reitman, and Jason Reitman were on stage. And I was like, all right, how's this going to go down then? And it turned out to be quite nice. But <laughs> I shouldn't have to sit in a room full of like-minded fans and go, who's going to be a dickhead right now and shit on the good mood? Totally. Yeah, exactly. Like, what asshole is going to stand up and voice some stupid offensive opinion about how much they didn't like something that no one cares about their opinion on anyway? Yeah. And it was a testament to the mood in the room that it was a really nice meeting of directors and things like that. It was actually quite touching at times. That's lovely. I mean, I guess I'm being a bit hyperbolic because I've made most of my like long standing friends through fandom and it's a very, you know, powerful thing. And it has a lot of potential for being super positive. It just also has that negative potential of being an absolute fucking nightmare dumpster fire. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things about the modern society in which we live is I feel like we're constantly subject to, oh, wait, you believe what? oh no, not you, kind of moments, <laughs> which the 2016 Ghostbusters was a great example of probably for many people. Mm. If for whatever stupid reason you really didn't think 2016 Ghostbusters should exist in the way it did, probably there were warning signs out there before that movie came out about your personality. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I just feel like we're constantly bombarded with, oh no, oh come on dude, not you, kind of moments constantly. It's additionally a bummer because the level of hatred that thing received was just so ugly, but also it was indeed a fucking terrible movie. <laughs> Maybe a hot take, but not for any of the reasons that people were getting pissed about. It's just not a good movie. I loved the 2016 movie, but I went in knowing that it wasn't going to be close cousin to the original movie. So I kind of appreciate that it's very much a part of Paul Feig's tone. And ultimately, I think it's that tone. Don't get me wrong. My opinion is like, I like the Ghostbusters 84, then I like the 2016 one, then I like Ghostbusters 2. That's kind of how it stands. And that's fine. And that's just my opinion. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, sorry. Put real Ghostbusters in that ranking? 
as a series? That's a different canon. That exists in its own universe. So I just love that separately. It's a nice little bubble thing I enjoy. Okay. That I can just pop in and go, oh yeah, the Bogeyman episode. That's nice. That is a good one. Yes. Yeah. There's another episode where Slimer does a naughty thing and causes a lot of trouble. And then everyone at the end goes, oh, Slimer, as he falls into a cake. You know, it's that kind of thing. (laughs) I don't think we've ever talked about this, but the existence of the New Jersey parallelogram was a big deal for me growing up in New Jersey. Really? Which I always really loved. (laughs) I'm 90% sure this was a real Ghostbusters episode. There's something like the Bermuda Triangle, but instead of the Bermuda Triangle, it's the New Jersey parallelogram, which is some like nexus of supernatural activity in New Jersey somewhere. I fucking love calling it the parallelogram. That's so much more exciting than the Bermuda Triangle. I can't remember the name of the title, but it is a Ghostbusters episode. and It involves Peter Venkman's, I want to say his dad or his uncle coming back. And you find out where Peter Venkman gets all his shyster, grifter kind of con man talk from. Yes, right. And through his dad's naughty dealings, they end up doing something to that parallelogram and releasing all these ghosts into New York. Yes, I remember that because the subway cars turn into like giant kind of worm things. I remember this now, yeah. Oh, I don't know. Because that also could be Lost and Foundry, which is the episode where a ghost falls into a molten vat of steel and then its ghost is separated out into every piece of steel that was sold into New York. So then everything starts coming to life in New York. Girders. And I think a train was one. But they all bleed into one at some point. And wasn't that in the credits? No, because the opening credits was its own thing. I love talking to you, Paul. Like (laughs) (laughs) The casual command of this trivia is breathtaking to me in all the best ways. I just feel conversation by conversation, I reveal to the world how lonely I really am. (laughs) (laughs) So remind me, where are you specifically right now? What city are you living in? I'm still in London. I'm still in London because, yeah, I bounced around for a bit with work, but I'm in London now working freelance for some radio stations and obviously the podcast stuff. So I'm back in the big smoke and obviously it's a great time to be in London right now. So It's a great time to be everywhere right now. Have you and Eli been getting together or have you done everything remotely? Sorry, what I'm talking about, everybody, is Paul's very funny podcast, Cheap Show, which I've been on... At least three moments, yeah. You're on the Your Envision episode. Uh, you're in the ep- 150. Yes. And then you're actually in the very first episode of the one that we released as Cheap Show. Right. We kind of revamped it because the first version of the show was absolute dark dog shit. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> so we revamped it and called it Cheap Show. And since then, it's been a success-ish. Success-ish. Was... That the thing we did live, was that the first episode? Because I remember doing a live show with you and Eli where we ate bad candy. (laughs) Yes. What kind of bad candy? I can't remember now. It's five years and 208 episodes ago. (laughs) It's so long ago. Yeah, it was like right before I moved away from London, which would have been five-ish years ago. Yeah. Um, And we did it at the Camden Head, upstairs at the Camden Head pub. And I feel like... You were going to do a recurring bit or you were just going to torture me with bad British candy. <laughs> yeah. And now I'm not a candy person anyway. I remember this candy being very off-putting, like <laughs> very off-putting. Too sweet, but in a disgusting way. I feel like one was shaped like a butt. Oh. I could be wrong about that, right? Butt candy. I don't know. The thing is, when we started doing the podcast, we didn't know what we were doing. We had no format. All we knew is that me and Eli had failed stand-up careers and we needed a plan B. And so we foolishly thought we could start it by being a live show. But it's really hard to get a good vibe in a room when the audience is like mostly German tourists and two pissed rugby players at the back. <laughs> Those first few episodes 
there are germs of what the show becomes in those live shows. But then the minute we decided to stop doing it live and take it to a studio and record it, just me and him, it was infinitely better. And the format fell into place because we suddenly realized, okay, well, me and you spend a lot of time in charity shops and secondhand shops, and we like bargain hunting and Poundland. So let's make a show where we look for the best or the absolute worst in these charity shops or thrift stores or whatever. And then since then, mm-hmm. it's just been this five-year genre-hopping, <laughs> weird podcast that I am really proud of, but I always say to people, it's such a hard fucking sell because <laughs> you've got two guys in an abusive relationship fighting over pointless ephemera they buy in charity shops and then building a world of characters and adventures and format-breaking episodes. And we somehow <laughs> managed to get to 208 episodes. And I was thinking about this the other day. It's like we've done a fake awards episode, two murder mystery episodes, a couple of live shows. We've done a walkabout episode. We just grabbed the microphone and went for a walk around London. We've done some night bus episodes. Oh, All sorts of weird stuff. Obviously, we did a few Zoom things. We did a couple of horror episodes, a couple of sci-fi episodes, because we can, weirdly. It all seems to still hold together. So I'm very proud of it. But yeah, it's a really hard sell because it's super vulgar. But it is very, very funny. It sounds so delightful, though, as a fellow ephemera enthusiast. Big question. What's your favorite thing you've ever found? What I'm about to tell you would take us down a really long conversational rabbit hole. So I want you to know if you want to know what the best thing we ever found is or what my favorite thing we ever found is. I want the long one. Both. Best of both words. Okay. So part of the show is we look for vinyl anything we can find. We love novelty hits. So we love, you know, the kind of one-hit wonders. We love the stuff that you don't remember. And one day, Eli turns up to the show. Eli Silverman is my co-host. He's a comedian and actor and stuff. He's recently in a film with Stuart Ashens, who's a big YouTuber in the UK, called The uh, Ashens and the Polybius Heist, which is a kind of spoof Ocean's Eleven thing about stealing the Polybius cabinet. He's in that, and he's very good in it, which I hate saying because I hate giving him compliments. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway... Eli is the record connoisseur. He knows everything. He's really well knowledge about all this kind of music stuff. And he came up one day with this seven-inch vinyl. And on the front, it looked like a microchip with a face. And on the corner, it just said Winky, right? And I was like, this is excellent. So we put it on. And it was this 80s French dance hit. Really poppy, really silly, pointlessly epic in its tone at times. But we couldn't figure out what it was until we saw this TM, trademark logo, on the end. And we thought, well, what's a winky then? What happened next was a two-year rabbit hole where we found out the most amazing story behind this record. And it led us down a story about a nightclub in San Francisco run by a, a madman called Dr. Winky who invented a toy called the Winky Badge, which didn't catch on, but it was sold in a few stores in LA to publicize it. They had a billboard set up on Sunset Boulevard just by the Standard Hotel. Yep. On the Sunset Strip, like prime Sunset Strip right there. Yeah. Just off there. And for six months, 12 people lived on that billboard to try and win uh, a competition that promoted Winky and they would get a movie deal and acting credits and things like that. That went on for six months. It involves people being on fire, sex, drugs and rock and roll, prostitutes, arguments and marriage. It involved the artist Keith Haring from New York and his artwork. It involved (laughs) people going missing. It involved the New York leg. And then eventually it swung around to this record that was made in France, which still had no connection to the stuff in LA. So then we found the guy who wrote it and he was this man who went mad 
And he had two videos on YouTube, two weird songs. And when we found them, it turned out in the 13 years the video had been on YouTube, me and Eli were the first person to play it. So it was this weird thing. And then we found this co-writer and we spoke to him and he told us the backstory about how this song came to be. And basically, long story short, it came about a year after the toy was attempted to be sold in LA. And a friend of this songwriter in France wanted to buy the toy and try and sell it in France, but this time make a song to promote it. They made the song. It didn't sell. No one bought it. No one played it on French radio. And so the toy died right there and then. And then it disappeared off the face of the earth for 30 years until Eli finds it on our show. We play it. All of a sudden, we start getting emails from people who start buying Winky badges online because we found that the badge was a toy and this guy had like 50 of them. And we bought one for the show and then someone else bought one. And then all of a sudden, this guy sold out and he emailed one of the people to say, I've had these badges for 20 odd years and no one's bought them. Now they're all gone. What's going on? That led to two of the people who were on the billboard finding out about our podcast, getting in touch <laughs> and telling us what happened on those six months. And it was the, they basically the people who got in touch were the people who got married and one was another acting agent. And then to cut a very, 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 very long story short, although this is already long enough, we turned all of that into a three-hour podcast, which we made this year for our 200th episode. So we did a three-hour documentary called Winky, The Untold Story, which has the whole story from beginning to end. and deep interviews with two of the people on the billboard and the French songwriter. And it's my favorite thing I've ever done professionally in my life, even though I think only about 7,000 people have heard it. <laughs> Can you drop a link to the song in the chat here? Because I think Leighton will want to hear it. Now, Paul's discussed all this with me before, and it is an amazing story. And the song is great. So can you throw a link in there? Yeah. Yeah, I will listen to this episode. This is my exact shit. Oh, yes. <laughs> did, did you Google this, Leighton, Winky, and look at it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a visual. I've, I've put it in the chat box. I'm listening to it right now. Yeah, let's let's do it right now. Oh, fuck yeah. <laughs> right. Why does this slap so hard? <laughs> yeah, this legit rules. Sorry, I'm just I'm, I'm bathing in the flow of this perfection. <laughs> yeah, and I think you played this for me. I don't know, it was like a couple of years ago when you first found out about it or something. Yeah, I remember we talked about it when you visited LA. Uh, yeah, I was just in immediately to this music. So great. Yeah, those synths. Wow. Here's the other thing as well. When we did the, the three-hour documentary episode, the French songwriter at the end of the interview goes, oh, you know, we made a pop video, right? And I was like, what? And he goes, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll have a look for it and I'll send you it. So he sent me the pop video that goes with that song. And he said, please don't put it up on YouTube or whatever, but we could use it on one of our live streams. So me and Eli worked it into one of our live episodes. Um uh, and that's on Twitch somewhere. But I, I, I can send you the link to that because that is a brilliant, look, beautiful, Please. completely French 80s pop video with even small animated moments in it as well where they've animated the Winky badge to come to life. Wow. Yeah, I can see why that's your favorite. That's a fucking incredible story. So, <laughs> yeah. So the badge itself was interesting because th I think theoretically it's the first ever piece of wearable technology because it was a little badge with a, a microchip in. What it did was nothing particularly special, but it had four contacts, one on each corner. 
And when it rustled against your clothes, obviously it was making contact with those four corners and it would affect the changing of the red and green blinking light on the face of the badge. Effectively, what it was, was like a pet rock with an LED on it. But that's effectively how they were selling it. So when you bought the badge, it had this really long spiel on the inside about where it came from, what it does, what it can do. Oh, it can improve your life. It makes you more conversational. It helps you make decisions. It can do this. It does none of that. (laughs) It does none of that. A Chia pet has more influence on your life than this badge. But the theory is that because he didn't sell it, it became something he gave out in his nightclubs in San Francisco. DV8 was the name of the club. Uh, It was opened by Keith Haring with a beautiful mural that Dr. Winky then went on to steal when it all went to shit years later. But but again, there's so many fascinating stories about that because a few people who worked at DV8 in the late 70s, early 80s got in touch and went, oh, we heard about your episode. Do you want to know some crazy shit about what happened in the nightclub? Such as when... (laughs) Grace Jones punched out someone because they were playing with her child that she brought to a nightclub. And just weird stories like this. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm looking at a how-to guide to make your own off-brand winky because that seems like a very simple uh, little soldering project, which is a thing that I love to do. A fan of Cheap Show put that together and uh, put a link up as a result. (gasps) Really? Yeah, he made me and Eli our own. That's amazing. It, It is incredible to me I mean, you can trace all this literally back to you guys, right? Like, this was not a, a thing that people had discovered, had rediscovered before you a couple of years ago. No, this is the weird thing. This isn't like uh, the get-along gang or, you know, uh, Sylvanian families where you go, oh, I kind of remember that. I kind of remember Wuzzles. It's not. It's like, this is something I'd never heard of before, but had this weird, massive kind of media footprint for six months in 1984. I wonder, I mean, because that was like peak Sunset Strip. I mean, that's like Motley Crue era Sunset Strip in the mid-80s. There must be people who remember this. Yeah, I'd imagine so, because there was also traffic going past all the time. Yeah, that's what I mean. There were numerous news media there for various events, like the wedding. I imagine a lot of the local prostitutes knew what were going on at the time, whether they're still there or not, who knows? Let's not look at that too closely. (laughs) I imagine there would be, but you also have to remember that. Sunset Strip was notorious for its billboards. It, like, There's a Rolling Stones article which goes into um, just how important it was to have a well-placed billboard on that strip of road because they had cars hanging off billboards there. They had other live events. They had the concert. They had you know, really elaborate light shows as well. Loads of stuff. This was just one, I guess, one crazy story in amongst some other ones. Yeah, that's a good point. And now we just have ones that are like here's an ad for my stand-up special. It's just big block text, like, reality ruining your life. I'm so sick seeing that goddamn billboard. It's everywhere. Yeah, it's that, and it's all cannabis ads, too. Lots of cannabis ads. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, the gentrified, like, weed delivery. It's so weird. It's so weird, because I lived in LA on and off for a few years, and I remember when I came back to do the Ghostbusters thing and then see you, Brian, and do the winky thing. It had been about almost 15, 16 years. And just to walk around and smell weed everywhere and then see the cannabis stands, I was like, when did this become New Amsterdam? It just felt really strange <laughs> to walk around in that environment. Yeah. As a pilgrimage, I did go to where the winky badge billboard was. And yeah, it was by the standard. And I just stood there and looked at a massive giant sign for a Netflix show. Yeah. Of course. I remember right after I moved here, one of the first things I saw was just like kid walking down the street, just like rolling a blunt wall in motion, which is not easy to do. But, you know, it was just ambling along. No. 
really just doing some expert blunt work. <laughs> <laughs> they fought this for so long, but that country took to it so quickly, like it was second nature. Yeah, and it's amazing to see how many, even in the recent election, like I think Jersey just legalized weed. Really? A bunch of places did. What was it, Colorado went first? To legalize it first, something like that? I think so. Yeah. It wasn't the story that the police force were giving out bags of Doritos, but on the backs of the bags, there were rules about how and how you can't use marijuana. So like the do's and don'ts of what you can now do. Oh, really? I didn't know that. That's amazing. I don't know if it was that state, but there's definitely a story about they were giving out munchies to stoners and just with a stuck on label saying, don't do this and you can't smoke it here, which is pretty clever. Yeah. See, like that's the kind of stupid thing I would buy on eBay, you know, like... I have a problem. I'll buy weird novelty ephemera on eBay. Yeah, I totally sympathize. Because of the podcast, I have a problem with board games. And now uh, my house is full of board games and my bank account isn't full of money. And it's all eBay's fault. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Tell that to my huge collection of VHS tapes and also like vintage blockbuster shit. Oh, you'll get on with a friend of ours called Richard Sandling then. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Sandling is, is a big lover of the VHS format. Yes, as well as generally a film guy. Oh, yes. Aha, I love a fellow film bro. He just made a sci-fi comedy called Phase, which I still have to see. He did, yeah. I was one of the backers, and I was on his perfect movie, the newest iteration of it, over the summer show. I was on that episode with you, I believe, and I remember it being a lot of fun. Didn't you do Ferris Bueller? I seem to remember in one of the scenes. Oh, that's right, of course. It was both of us. That's beautiful. I said this on that episode, and I've told this story a bunch of times, although not on this podcast, but Paul and Richard Sandling, the guy we were just talking about, were the first two British comedy people I met when I knew I was moving to England. So Danny and I were performing at Geek Week in Boston. That's right, yeah. Yeah, and Paul and Richard were also performing at that, doing stand-up stuff, right? And I remember meeting you guys in the green room at the actually now defunct Improv Boston. They went out of business or lost their space, I should say. That's kind of a good and a bad thing based on the stories I've heard, but that's a different discussion, I guess. Yeah, that place had a lot of drama and stuff, but I I had so many great experiences there. But I remember meeting you guys and being like, hey, I'm moving to England in a few months and we should all hang out. And then we saw each other very sporadically, but frequently over the next several years. Yeah, it was frustrating. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's London in a nutshell. You can have your closest friends in London, but never see them. Yes. <laughs> you could live two streets over for whatever reason. That's a lot of effort because London wears you down. As you know, same thing with Los Angeles, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. The story of Los Angeles is I have so many friends here and I never see anybody. That's everybody's like. Yeah. You either don't know anybody and you feel very isolated or you know a lot of people and then you never see them and you feel very isolated. And that's Los Angeles. Yeah. And you see each of them maybe once a year and you're like, oh, we should do this more often. And then it's like two years past and you're like, hey, <laughs> what's up? When was that last time I saw you? Three years ago. We've had two kids since then. I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, dude. <laughs> For us, we've been in LA five and a half years now, about that. And there are people I saw, I think the first year we were out here, who I was like, yeah, let's hang out again soon. And I cannot believe it's been four plus years since I've seen a bunch of these people. And it feels like, oh yeah, I've been meaning to get around to that. And it's not for lack of contact. People are just busy or... Yeah. Actually, I saw all these people. I saw more when I was visiting LA before I moved here than when I actually lived here. Mm. So one friend, probably been a year, year and a half since I've seen him, I texted him 
couple months ago saying, hey, you know, we've been doing backyard hangouts occasionally during pandemic. I would love to see you if you're available. And he clicked a thumbs up on it. And that was it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's like for me, realizing that if you actually want to see one, you have to be like, hey, are you free next Thursday or Wednesday? Please let me know a time that is good. (laughs) Yes. Or what I found is even more successful is, hey, are you free right now? I'm next to where you live. Are you free right now? Yeah. That's my nightmare, Brian. (laughs) It is also how horror films start. (laughs) Yeah. That's what like fucking Matt Watson does. Like I remember I was in Germany and I got a text at like 4 a.m. LA time that was like, hey, I'm outside your apartment right now. Like, (laughs) dude, (laughs) what? I love that move because it's also like, if you're not available, that's no hard feelings, you know, whatever. But Hmm. if it happens to be that you're around and free to do something, great. Now, I would not do that late, late at night. It would be like an evening or middle of the day thing. I never go out in the evening anymore because I have a child. But it would be like in the middle of the day, hey, I'm in whatever, Culver City, are you here? It's not like I get upset when people aren't available. And I don't even do this that often. But when it works out, I think it's great. I love doing it because then you get to see people. Yeah. As somebody who's constantly looking for reasons to feel guilty, despite you not being upset about it, I will feel the guilt of like, oh man, I should have, I should have been free so I can go hang out with this person. They're never going to want to hang out with me again. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> I killed off all those emotions years ago. <laughs> I am completely fine with <laughs> being a flake. <laughs> a- oh wonderful. yeah. Certainly as I get older, I am much more willing to not hang out with people or not be available, Mm. especially now when so much of one's mental energy, my mental energy goes into just continuing to exist. Yeah. Yep. And it's not like right now there's tons of people to hang out with anyway, as there shouldn't be. There better not fucking be. Mm. Uh, Not for whatever, six more months or something, whatever we got. But I'm perfectly willing to be like, I just do not have it in me tonight. But I will say, I hate canceling plans at the last minute. I I wouldn't do that unless it was a real, I just couldn't do it. But that is a classic LA move too, is the, all right, we planned this three months ago and you just flaked on me as I was on the way to your place. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's the worst. Happens all the time. So I wanted to circle back around to the flat earth thing. So I just really wanted to preach the good gospel of um, (laughs) earth is flat folks. Okay. Layton, we didn't have a discussion over text, but Should we have this guy on the show? I mean, I think you should. You kind of have to. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think for a full episode, I just want to hear Uh. you destroy this man. (laughs) (laughs) I think this is a legitimate question because I am very much of two minds about it. The first thing I feel is I don't want to platform cranks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's for sure an ethical quandary. Yeah. And the problem with quote-unquote debates of this kind of nature is unless you have a researched debate ahead of time, it's more or less impossible to do these things well, right? Mm -hmm. By the way, okay, let me just establish up front, the Earth is round and it is three-dimensional, all right? End of story. We do not live on a flat Earth. The Earth is not flat, guys. Yes, the Earth is not flat. Anyone who believes this does so in a way that flies in the face of literally everything we understand about everything. I do have one question about that, though, is that when people say it's a flat Earth, how flat? Are we talking like paper thin or, you know, reasonably chunky? That's a very good question. I would imagine it can't be properly two-dimensional, like a flat surface, because you can, like, dig into it, right? So it has to be deep enough that they can dig and then give up, but not so deep that it makes it round. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, exactly. I'm looking at some images of it, and it's like there seems to be a craggy, craggy underbelly and then a dome on the top of it. So fucking stupid. There's a dome? No, there's not a dome. That makes it not flat. There's a dome? No. <laughs> Here's a question that I know they have an answer to, which is, so because the Earth is round, right, we get gravitationally attracted to the Earth, which has the basic effect of being attracted to the center of mass of the Earth. So you can ask, if the Earth is flat, what causes gravity? And do you know what their answer to this is? Go on. No. It is the fact that gravity causes an acceleration. Basically, this disk that is the Earth is accelerating upwards at 9.8 meters per second squared. Oh, I see. <laughs> what they're saying is it's like we're in a lift going up really fast. Correct. And... <laughs> We're, we're, we're in a lift that is accelerating at a constant acceleration. So you might ask, okay, constant acceleration means at some point you will go faster than the speed of light, right? The acceleration is the rate of change of velocity. If every second you add 9.8 meters per second to your velocity, at some point you get faster than the speed of light. They must have an answer to this like... Why doesn't this violate relativity? They probably don't believe in relativity either. No. Because you can't think the Earth is flat and believe in, for example, general relativity, the theory of gravity. But yeah, that was one thing that really fucking blew my mind when I read this, is they like, oh no, they really think that we are in a disk that is accelerating upwards at constant acceleration. Like, fuck you. I'm sorry. Now I'm mad. Now I'm actually mad. <laughs> what the f so what do they think is happening with the sun and the moon? They think the moon's fake, right? Oh, do they? There are theories about a fake moon, yeah. And a hollow earth, and that the sun's a satellite, and we're all in a marble hanging off a cat's neck. Or is that men in black? <laughs> <laughs> okay, how do I put this so I don't sound like a cruel idiot is how it comes across. But I'm just going to come across as a cruel idiot. <laughs> Paul, cruel idiot is basically our MO on this podcast. Oh, Christ. I don't like punching down, but in this case, I just kind of need to qualify that. I just think a lot of people are into flat earth and, and hollow earth and ghost hunting and demonology and all these kind of things. I just think they're very boring people who want to feel special. And by making themselves part of a movement, something that goes against normality or, you know, the social norms, it gives them direction. It gives them a sense of identity. And I think a lot of people who do the flat earth thing do it because I think they just simply get off on the fact of being contentious, the whole no but, that whole approach. Yeah. Honestly, you're not punching down. You're just accelerating very fast <laughs> upwards towards, <laughs> towards their face. <laughs> when I did the ghost hunting, I never did it because I believed in ghosts. I was pretty confident there is nothing after death and I'm reasonably fine with that. But I did it for the experience and the kind of people I met and their beliefs and the adventure of doing it and seeing how people behaved. And that to me was fascinating. And through that, I got to see the countless number of reasons why people did it. And the story that always springs to mind is there was one woman and she went with us to a place called the Hellfire Caves, which was a kind of underground nightclub in the 1700s for posh people who hated religion. Benjamin Franklin apparently went there and had a few orgies, apparently. Long story short, woman was there asking all these interesting questions about what it means to die and what happens to the body and is there an afterlife? And obviously there's a psychic on duty, so there he's feeding her all this kind of pleasant thoughts about moving on and the light and the beautiful bliss of nothingness in heaven. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. Then I went outside for a smoke and she was talking to her friends and it came out for the conversation that her husband was dying and didn't have that long to live. And she just wanted to know he was going somewhere after he died. And it's not my point at that time to step in, tap her on the shoulder and say, oh, you know, this is all bollocks though, right? 
you know, this is all bullshit. Yeah. Because th- that doesn't make me a better human being. No, it's one of those things where it's like, if this is what's helping you get through a difficult time, then like, do what you got to do. Yeah. But also there's a level of where it's so easy to flip that into taking advantage of people who are similarly going, not saying that that's what that one was doing, but like it becomes very easy to prey upon people who are in that vulnerable position. I mean, that's how cults work and shit. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and to be fair, you could argue things like flat earth is cultish thinking. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, it's an identity thing too, right? Like it's, I have conflated my identity with this belief and so any attack on the belief is an attack on my identity. 100%. And I think that it's also true, it becomes not only part of your identity, you feel special because you know something they don't. And this is a big part of conspiracy thinking in general. And the fact that now we live in a time where these insane fringe viewpoints have very easy outlets on, you name it, whatever, Facebook, YouTube, pick a social media platform. So you can immediately find a ton of people who agree with you about basically whatever. It really just causes people to double down on all these things. Plus that coupled with the complete eroding of the educational system, at least in the US and many other places as well. It's this confluence of identity, feeling special and not learning how to think critically Mm. that just makes people really get all into these things. I think Flat Earth, it's just such a great example because it's so obviously wrong. (laughs) Demonstrably in every single direction wrong. Flies in the face of absolutely everything we understand about science. If that were true, it would mean that a million other things would have to be wrong as well. At first, for a while when I heard about it, I thought it was like the birds aren't real thing where people are doing it as kind of a joke. (laughs) Or the spaghetti monster god. Yeah, exactly. Ah, yes. You know, it's like people doing it to kind of be silly. But my understanding now is that it's not. There are definitely people out there who are legit flat earthers who will claim that the earth is flat and they're not just doing it to be contrarian. They actually believe it. And it is is so upsetting. I'm going to get on a soapbox here for a second. (laughs) If you believe the earth is flat, you're not really doing anyone any harm. You're an idiot but you're not doing anyone any harm. But it leads very naturally to things like vaccine denial and climate denial, where you are again rejecting a very firm scientific consensus. And if you don't believe in climate change or that vaccines work, you are killing people. And to me, a slippery slope argument can be a tough thing to say. They're not always philosophically on firm footing, but once you're open to conspiracy thinking, you open the door to a lot of bullshit that has a body count. Well, and additionally, it is that algorithmic radicalization. Yes. Like you watch one video and then it's like, oh, hello, would you like to be radicalized in a terrible direction? Like I saw somebody post a screenshot of a really fucking stupid looking video that was a guy being like, 10 things to say to turn women on. And it was like, Okay, I have to watch this video because this is... Wait, wait, hold on. (laughs) What were they? Just real quick, what were they? (sighs) Hold on, what was it? So first of all, the reason I went to try to watch it, it was a picture of the guy with like phrases and he was standing in front of a bunch of like charts, like graphs, because nothing turns a lady on more than graphs. Agreed, but continue. (laughs) (laughs) I got two seconds into the video and I just had to dip. It was so incredibly obnoxious. But then all my recommendeds were like pickup artist shit. 
one video, a single video, and then it's like, do you just only want this now? That's so upsetting. It just feels like part of the issue is not like someone's crazy thought, because we all have crazy thoughts. It's more like who amplifies those crazy thoughts. Like the most offensive thing to me about the anti-vax thing is that anyone ever took any notice of Jenny McCarthy at all, ever. And the fact that they did on this one note, is that's offensive. Yeah. yeah. There was a website for a while called Jenny McCarthy has a body count. Oh, wow. Because it is true. It is objectively a true statement that by encouraging people to not get vaccines, she and everyone else involved in this fucking thing was killing people. Right. www.jennymccarthybodycount.com. Show me. I want to see it. Holy fuck. I haven't looked at this site in years. It's depressing that it still exists, I guess. Um, would you all like to take a wild guess at number of preventable deaths? From all vaccines or is it just MMR? From June 3rd, 2007 to July 18th, 2015. Wow. Can I ask, does the website just have a picture of her face and her mouth opens and the numbers run across her open black void? <laughs> God, I wish. It's very GeoCities. I'm going <laughs> to guess preventable deaths. Not that I would have a good answer no matter what. I know she was big anti-MMR because of like the Andrew Wakefield bullshit. I would imagine that she extrapolated that into vaccines in general. I'm going to guess it's in the hundreds of thousands. No, actually. Number of preventable illnesses is uh, 152,000, but number of preventable deaths is 9,028, which I think that number is, it's got to be way higher than that. I wonder how they calculate that. That's wild. It's a hard question to ask as someone's dying. Did Jenny McCarthy do this to you? Yeah. It's like, hey, are you a fan of Jenny McCarthy, by the way? <laughs> she was good yeah. in screen three. I remember her in remote <laughs> control growing up. Oh, God. She was like the sidekick, I think. On that, do you know what remote control is, Leighton? Yeah. We had a version of it, that TV show in the UK called Remote Control. I don't know how similar it was to yours, because that was an MTV show, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Ours was hosted by Frank Sidebottom, who was a man with a giant papier-mâché head on. It was like a kind of general knowledge quiz thing with a spinning wheel, and then if they got ejected out of the show, they got tipped backwards. Yes, exactly. Is that Frank the same as the movie Frank from a couple of years ago? Yeah, that's what it's based on. That guy, yeah, Chris Stevie. Stevie. I, I'm awful when it comes to recalling actual information other than Ghostbusters plot points. Yeah, was there a John Ronson thing, maybe? Yeah, John Ronson performed in Frank Sidebottom's band in the maybe late 80s, early 90s, and then before he went on to do his thing. So that whole book and the film is about his life working with Frank Sidebottom, basically. Hmm. Wow. So Remote Control, if you don't know, Layton, was a game show. I remember it being one of the first, like, funny, like, edgy, hip, young game shows. And if you lost, you were sitting in these big kind of comfy chairs and they would eject you backwards and you'd be kicked out uh, yeah. if you got eliminated. Do you fall into a thing? Is it a pit of spikes? Is it lava? <laughs> I don't remember even what it was. I think you just like fell out of view. The thing I remember thinking was so funny was they had a speed round. It was like, you know, A or B. And so they had a game that they would play regularly called Dead or Canadian. And <laughs> they would give you the name of a famous person, and you had to say if they were dead, Canadian, both, or neither. <laughs> I just love that bit. Speaking of a game show segment, I feel like that's a good transition into some segments here. So what do you say, Leighton? Should we move it on to everyone's favorite segment? Do what you're going to do, Brian. Before we move on to a segment, I want us to say one thing. Yes, please. I don't believe in ghosts. I need to stress that really importantly before anyone <laughs> thinks I, I'm, I, I applied like a flat earther to be on this podcast. <laughs> I just want that stated, then we can move on. I'm happy now. Okay, great. We barely touched the ghost hunting shit, which is my bad. So before we go to the segments, the very first thing we said was ghost watch. 
So Leighton, what were you going to say about Ghostwatch? Oh, I was just going to ask about your relationship to it. Oh, well, for me, I thought it was real when it went out on BBC and it scared the hell out of me. When you watch it back now, it is dated in the way you expect a BBC 1993 drama to date in terms of some of the acting and, and some of the aesthetics. But it's still really fucking good. It's still an amazingly effective horror. I, mean, I call it a film because it is 90 minutes, even though it was broadcast on TV. Yeah. It's one of the most effective horror films I've ever seen. And that isn't me just being hyperbole that is like you know the ghost in it pipes that um lurks in the house throughout the thing yeah that ghost appears like 13 times throughout the whole of the running time of that thing and one or two times it's blatantly obvious and it's a good jump scare but there are times when it's just standing outside in the garden staring in through the patio window or it's hiding behind the swings in the park yeah, they do that really smart thing where they show him and then they're like, oh, the callers are saying that he was in that shot and then they replay it and he's not there. Like yeah. a couple of months ago, I did this three-parter like horror history podcast on the history of found footage. And I spend like a very considerable portion of time talking about Ghostwatch and like the influence that it had on the genre and like all the kerfluffle about it. Yeah, I love that shit very much. It's And if anybody hasn't watched Ghostwatch by this point, it's free on archive.org and I just like can't recommend it enough. It's a really great time. It's a great spooky Halloween show. Um, it's unfortunate that it was almost too good because the BBC never repeated it because they were kind of ashamed. Oh, they got in so much fucking trouble. It's such a complicated story because effectively what happened was Stephen Volk, who wrote that, who also wrote Gothic, which is an amazing film. And also he wrote The Guardian, the William Friedkin film about the tree that eats people right. with the nanny. Oh, wow. But he wrote Ghostwatch. Now, when he initially decided to write it, it was a six-part show. And the first five parts are just like narrative drama, you know, multi-camera about this haunted house and how it leads up to the live episode. And episode six was going to be the live episode. So by then, you knew it was all fake. And even when the show went out, it was listed as a BBC drama directed by, written by, starring. It wasn't hiding the fact that it was a production. But it was just so effective that if you'd missed the first two or three minutes of the show that kind of showed how obviously it was all scripted. You would believe wholeheartedly it was real because you had real British celebrities hosting it and it looked real and well done and it was terrifying. But the greatest thing about Ghostwatch is that despite the controversy, despite how effective it was, without Ghostwatch, you wouldn't have the gamut of ghost hunting shows that exist now because the DNA of things like Ghost Adventures, Ghost Hunters, Most Haunted, Ghost Lab, whatever these bloody shows are called, they all kind of follow the same structure as Ghostwatch. Mm -hmm. The only difference is Ghostwatch, things happened and it was scary. Everything else is just watching people in black and white have nervous breakdowns. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, Zach Baggins spending a night in the demon house and then getting spooked so hard he has to wear crystal glasses. <laughs> he makes me so angry, that man. He makes me genuinely angry. He is the P.T. Barnum of the modern supernatural era. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say it. A massive con man and an idiot. I've never even heard of this guy. He just feels like a little ghost jester to me. I love watching his shit just because it's like, how are you real? <laughs> Should I be happy that I don't know who this person is? Yes. He would make you so mad, Brian. Great. He's the host of Ghost Adventures. And he was a guy who started out, I think he posted a video up online of some ghost hunt he went on. And it was a massive success. And then a TV company approached him and went, make a series out of that. And by God, did it go to his head. Because it's like watching all the bullies from Revenge of the Nerds. It's like if you gave them a ghost hunting show. Sorry, you mean the good guys, the protagonists of the movie, the bullies? No, no, no. The, the, the bad guys in Revenge <laughs> of the Nerds. Imagine giving them a ghost hunting show. And that is ghost adventures. Yeah, the good guys, like Ogre. And oh, I see what you were doing there with a subversion yes. of my expectations against That's what right. you were like as a character. Yep. I see what you've done. 
What can I say? I'm a professional. <laughs> Even though I hate them and I hate Zach, I still watch it. It's like being in an abusive relationship. You go back because maybe this week they see a ghost. <laughs> but you know it's not going to happen. The movie Demon House is so fucking funny. It's ridiculous because it oh is that God. like he has a breakdown and it is like, I got to get out of here. Um, and then bails on the challenge. Doesn't he board himself up? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I seem to remember he seemed to board himself up because he has to be alone to fight this. This demon. Yeah, I just constantly think about, like, there are things in this world we will never understand. Like, he has such a specific cadence and... Yeah. God bless him, I guess. It's like that famous clip of him where he went to the uh, axe murder house or whatever it was and he was delicately dangling an axe over his head saying, come on, ghost, come on, drop this axe in my head. And I'm like, <laughs> I, o- I can only hope the axe falls at this point. <laughs> Yeah, if only. That's a very funny... Like, if you're dangling an axe over your head and you get hit by an axe, I think we know who to blame for that one. Obviously the ghosts. Before we move on to the segments, I will leave you with this. So, because I love ghost hunting and things like this, I've been involved with a few TV companies that are trying to pitch ideas. And I thought, here's a great idea for a ghost hunting show that hasn't been done, which is strange considering every idea has ever been done. If you ever get the chance to watch a ghost hunt with Meatloaf, wherever it is, watch it. It is the most amazing hour of (laughs) of your life. With the Meatloaf. Bat out of hell Meatloaf. Meatloaf goes back to where he recorded Bat Out of Hell and confronts the demons that haunted him during the making of that album. There's a scene where he is shouting into the corner of a room saying, ha ha ha, you're dead. I got a platinum selling album. How do you feel about that? (laughs) What? (laughs) That happens. That's really going to anger the ghosts. I think it's called The Haunting of Meatloaf. If you can find it online, I recommend it. Yeah, so, so I was pitching this show. Imagine Judge Judy, but with ghosts. So a person comes in and goes, my house is haunted. And they show all this evidence that they've filmed. And then the skeptics come in and they go, here's all the counter evidence. And then they go, oh, it's haunted or not. And I thought, what a fun show. Sent it on. They pass it on to the History Channel. And then the History Channel replied about a week or so later. And I don't have the email to hand. But it effectively said, no, we can't make this show because we've got to side with people who believe in ghost hunting because they're our audience, they're the people who watch it. If you put skeptic material in, it'll put them off. So we've got to keep them on our side. And I'm thinking, you're the fucking history channel. That's terrible. You deal in facts. Fuck you. (laughs) It was funny to the extent of, I can't believe this is the reason why they turned it down. God damn it. You guys remember when Animal Planet was like good and educational and had like a bunch of really fun shows that were interesting and now it's all reality tv and history channel is all ancient aliens yeah which to be clear i love watching me some ancient aliens but yeah was that back when mtv played music yeah pretty much yeah (laughs) yeah the slow flanderization of every every (laughs) single channel into absolute dog shit did you know uh, i always forget bad out of hell the album there it's a trilogy there are three bad out of hell albums i didn't know there's a third one yeah well that's the thing is i always think of the first two and there was a third one that came out in 2006. Oh, no. Yeah, which I have not listened to. <laughs> That's the only appropriate response, I think. If a massive album comes out to one of the two biggest albums of all time, and I didn't know it existed, that's a bad sign. Because I don't know music anyway, but I know those two were huge albums. Totally. I, I remember discovering this, I don't know, like a year ago, because I think I was listening to Bad Out of Hell, which is not something I do that often. But occasionally I'll go back and listen to big hit albums from the 70s just to be like, is there anything here? By the way... On that note, the Kansas album, Left Overture, which has Carry On Wayward Son, is bad. Don't listen to it. Oh, yeah. It's, oh, it's a real slog. <laughs> it's just prog masturbation, not in a good way. As someone who's cataloged the music of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, I can feel that pain. 
<laughs> God, like fucking prog masturbation is just what it is when you're on antidepressants. <laughs> it's like this, this is going to take so long. Yeah, it's long. It goes nowhere. And there's a lot of keyboards. There's a fat drum solo in there. (laughs) (laughs) I have been listening to a lot of Andrew Gold, though, at the moment, and I can recommend that as nice middle-of-the-road fun. What I was going to say is, even though Left Overture by Kansas is not good music, Paul, I do want to play something for you that's really, really good music. Now, Leighton, before I continue, I need your explicit verbal consent. (sighs) For what? What am I consenting to? You're consenting to me continuing on to what's popping. Yeah! All right, that's a yes, great. Moving on. There's your enthusiastic consent, motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) Paul, we're now going to move on to the first of two segments. Uh, This is called What's Poppin'. It is our pop culture recommendation segment. And it's where we recommend, you know, whatever pop culture stuff we've been watching or listening to, experiencing, playing, whatever. The thing that is relevant to us right now is not what's in the actual segment, but the music for the segment. Much like with any theme songs we have on this show, I wrote them. Although maybe, Leighton, did you write us a piece of music? I can't remember. I've written stuff for minisodes and shit. For the minisodes, yeah. But always, actually, one of us writes the music for the show. And for this particular segment, What's Poppin', I wrote a truly incredible theme song. And, I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a musician. I write a lot of music. This one's really good. Normally, I'd be worried about overhyping it. I'm worried about underhyping it here because it's... It's that good. It's that excellent. It's that amazing. I mean, I am tenting right now, so that's a good sign. (laughs) Well, I would expect nothing less. Uh, So, what I want you to do, I'm gonna, we're gonna play it for you, and I want your honest, unvarnished reaction to it. Is it merely incredible? Is it extra amazing? Is it perhaps the best thing you've ever heard? You, you can be honest. You, you, you got to play it quick because I think I'm about to come. So you need to strike while the iron's hot. That's very on brand for this podcast. There's a lot of discussion of come. You could consider us scholars of come. <laughs> then you need to listen to Cheap Show because that's all that podcast is. We pioneered a phrase on the last episode with Miles Luna, which was a come drop, which is uh-huh. we just do a little radio style come drop. I don't want to prolong this anymore. I'm going to play it for you right now. This incredible theme song. Tell me what you think. Here it is. What's poppin'? What's poppin'? And there we go. Right. I didn't hear a thing. It was completely silent there. <laughs> <laughs> go fuck yourself, Brian. Unless you've got Mike Bat and delivered a jingle that is like literally seven seconds of silence, then I don't know. It's just a real brown note that enrages me. The point is that once again, this very stupid bit that I love to do has failed. Right, good. Well, it was very challenging. Good. In the event that Paul had responded positively, as we saw last week with Miles, who yes-anded you in a way that made me furious, I was holding a pair of pants the entire time so that when I screamed, it would not clip the mic (laughs) as hard. (laughs) The thing is, I am still hard, and I don't know what to do. (laughs) Brian, do the entire bit again, but slower. (laughs) (laughs) For it to be yes-anding, it has to be clear that the other person is establishing something, which it is not in my case. (laughs) The whole premise of the bit is flawed and is my fault. We got a YouTube comment that I really loved that was like when Brian starts doing the what's poppin' bit and then they did like fast forward 10 seconds, fast forward 10 seconds, fast forward 10 seconds. 
Good. Good. That's how you know we have true fans. This is how I know it's a proper podcast because you do the yes anding when it comes to, you know, conversation. Eli and I, we've discovered that our podcast is built on no but. So that's how we have our conversations. <laughs> that's the way to go. Sometimes you got to do the no but. You have to. It's funny. Yeah. You know, for all of the fucking yes and rules of improv bullshit, sometimes the funniest thing you can do is just knock someone the fuck down. Yeah, sadly. All right, let's do this fucking stupid segment. Paul, what's popping? <laughs> <laughs> There's a book that's been out for a few years, but it's if you're interested in the paranormal, I always recommend people read it. First of all, it's a great read. It's lots of fun. If you like John Ronson type stuff, you'll enjoy it. It's called Will Store versus the Supernatural. It's just a great book. So basically, Will Store is a journalist in the UK. He's written for a bunch of magazines and newspapers. And during one research article into demonology, he went on a ghost hunt. And that led him on to basically exploring ghost hunting around the world. And it takes him to strange parts of America and it takes him to the Vatican and talks about the Enfield poltergeist in it, which is a very famous poltergeist case in the UK. Huh. If anyone knows about it in America at all, it's probably because of the awful film Conjuring 2 put the Warrens, who I hate, <laughs> front and center in a story. They didn't actually take... Yeah, fuck them. Yeah, they weren't there at all during that whole case, but they apparently saved the day. Anyway, the book goes in chapter by chapter with these kind of experiences he has with believers and skeptics and the theories of ghosts. It's great because it sits on the fence, which to some extent could be annoying, but because of the way the story develops and how it ultimately ends, how it kind of loops back on itself, it feels like a complete experience. It's just a very good read. It's been out for a while, but I read it recently because I was getting ready to do my research for my own stuff. And I just forgot how amazing that book is. So I always like to recommend it when I can. Of course. And for this segment, it, it is almost never a new thing or from the past five years. I mean, Brian, it's mostly 30-year-old Yacht Rock. Hey. Although, okay, I'm going to go next because my recommendation this week for the first time in a very long time is a brand new thing. <gasps> Ooh. And it also, very atypically for me, is a film. <gasps> so what's popping for me is the new documentary on Disney Plus, Howard, which is about Howard Ashman, famously Ashman and Mencken, who wrote uh, Little Shop of Horrors. They wrote the songs for Aladdin, uh, Beauty and the Beast, Little Mermaid. So it's about this guy, Howard Ashman, who is a writer. He did the lyrics and Alan Menken was the composer, and they teamed up on all these classic productions. Ashman was a gay man who died of AIDS in the, I guess, mid to late 90s. I can't remember. It just talks about his life. And the most interesting thing to me about this, I knew a bit about him because I'm such a fan of what he does. After Little Shop of Horrors, actually, was that before? I can't remember. He wrote a musical based on uh, God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, the Vonnegut book, which I didn't even know was a musical. They had like a little black box kind of theater, the WPA theater, and then they tried to take it to Broadway and it just flamed out on the bigger stage. And he also had a, like a Broadway Broadway musical called Smile about beauty pageants, which I'd never even heard of because apparently it was a huge flop and was so roundly rejected by critics and audiences, I think, that he left New York to move to L.A. and work on Disney stuff. And that's when he ended up doing uh, all the Disney stuff uh, from him and Mencken that people love. It's a really touching story of this guy's life, a really, really brilliant dude uh, that I knew very little about personally. 
but a lot of fun footage. But they have footage from the Beauty and the Beast recording where you can see fucking Angela Lansbury and Jerry Orbach recording their thing. Apparently, the story with that, Jerry Orbach did Lumiere, the Candelabra. Apparently, he just showed up and he was like, I'm doing a French accent. And everyone was like, really? (laughs) You're doing a French accent? And he's like, yep. And they just ran with it. It works so great. Yeah, it really does. I've always been a fan of Howard Ashman because I was the biggest Little Shop of Horrors nerd as a kid. The best. Yep. It is my favorite musical, hands down, Little Shop of Horrors, because it ticks all the boxes that I like. The film version is fantastic. Even the play versions I've seen, you know, which doesn't have the Mean Green Mother segment in, which is always a bit, oh, I like that song. Wow me. And so I'd love to watch this documentary because it was such a marked difference when after he died that... The songs sounded good, but the delicate, clever lyric wordplay weren't there anymore. And like, you, it's so yes, it's so apparent in things like Little Ship of Horrors. But when you look at like Heather's Edge to Aladdin, for example, the wordplay and the lyrics, some of it which I believe got censored and then put back in. Long story short, I just want to watch that. So yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that. It's great. I highly recommend it. And the music and the songs are just unparalleled. And I agree with you, by the way, Little Shop of Horrors. That movie is one of the most successful movie musicals of all time. The music rules. The acting is fantastic, especially Ellen Green, who originated in the role of Audrey. Yeah. She's just incredible. What blew my mind about Little Ship of Horrors is when they made it, because obviously Frank Oz directed it, a part of the Muppet Empire. I didn't know until reasonably recently that when they did the songs or any dialogue with the plants, it was done at half speed. So they had the time to move the plants to lip sync to the songs. Oh, really? Yeah, so Rick Moranis is singing at half speed. Everyone's singing slower. But that's why the lip syncing on that plant is absolutely beautiful. That's fascinating. The puppetry on that plant is Unreal. The lips, by the way, on on that plant are extremely disturbing. Very, very anal. Yeah. People will often ask us if we named Audrey after Audrey Hepburn. And the answer is we didn't name her after anyone. We just like the name Audrey. But if pressed, we will say we named her after uh, Audrey from Little Shop of Horrors or Audrey too, depending on what we're feeling. Yeah. (laughs) All right, Layden, what's popping? My what's popping is a book that's called Analog Days, The Invention and History uh-huh. of the Moog Synthesizer. Ooh. Yeah, it's a big, fat book. For big, fat sounds. About big, fat synths. I'm not super far into it just because I have such a hard time focusing on shit lately, but aren't we all? But it's so readable and like so fascinating, just all these like electronics punks making cool sounds in their basements. But lots of like interesting stuff I've learned so far, like... The guy who invented the theremin, what's his face? Lev Theremin, I believe. Yeah, he came to America because he was a fucking Soviet spy. And then shit with the theremin like started working out. And he was like, all right. You should see the documentary Theremin from the late 90s on him. It's it's great. Oh, shit. They talk about that extensively. I would love to own a theremin someday. They're pretty affordable. Sort of. Yes. I mean, I built a theremin once. It's a really shitty theremin, but... That's what I meant, is the kits are pretty cheap. To get, like, a legit pro one is, I'm sure, more expensive. Yeah, they're they're expensive. Um, but yeah, I've been really enjoying it. I think it's fun. I like sounds. I like reading about sounds. I like reading about people making cool shit with electronics. Cool. Well, that was the thing, because, like, we do a lot of Moog on Cheap Show, because Eli's obsessed with it, and we like looking for it in charity shops. And sometimes you find, you know, the crazy Moog stuff where it's like country Moog and someone's done, you know, oh, yeah. all the all the old country standards on a Moog or they've done like party time Moog or yes. 
we've got all of these, but we've also got like um, the Wendy Carlos albums and they're fantastic to listen to. Those are amazing. Oh, fuck. I'm jealous of that. Yeah, there's even some really interesting like BBC Radiophonic Workshop stuff where they were just messing about. There's one they did with uh, Anthony Newley called Oogly Mooglies or something like that. It's just... <laughs> Oogly Mooglies. Oh my God. Yeah, it's something like that. It's a really weird name, but basically Deborah Derbyshire, she teamed up with Anthony Newley and they did this whole kind of soundscapey poetry, slightly Alice in Wonderlandy nonsense kind of moogie vibe thing. Mm-hmm. So much so, actually, that when we did our Your Envisions contest, that was an episode where we asked our cheap show listeners to send in songs and they'd be judged by a panel of guests, one of which was Brian, funnily enough. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. We had a few Moog tracks thrown in. People did their own Moog-style music. And it was, some of it was really cool. Yeah. Some of my favorite Wendy Carlos stuff is her work for the Clockwork Orange soundtrack. Yes. Which I have not been able to find. I have the album album, but you can't easily stream it, and I'm not quite sure why. Huh. Oh, wow. There is some of it on Spotify now. Yeah, some of it. But a lot of her work is still kind of hard to find. And the score, I should really say for that, is just incredible. Yeah, main title from The Shining, fucking all the Tron stuff. Yeah, the Tron Scherzo. Yeah. It's so fucking good. Yeah, she's a legit genius. Yeah, what a fucking hero. All right, next segment. Welcome to Peaches and Lemons, which is a gratitude exercise where we also bitch about things. So we each do three peaches, which are things that we're grateful for, excited about, good things that happened. They can be as, you know, big and meaningful or as petty as you want. Now that we're almost in Biden's America, because we promised that if Biden won, we would start doing lemons again. (laughs) Uh, Lemon is just like a petty gripe. We get to talk about the petty gripe and we'll each share one and then we'll roll into each doing our little gratitude exercise. So who has a lemon? Uh, I can go real quick. I am writing some puzzles right now with some friends for a thing I'm working on. I don't want to talk about too much because I don't know if I'm at liberty to say, but my close friend, Jeff, who is a very smart man, who's also a very good puzzle constructor, made a Sudoku variant that took me all fucking week to solve. And on our, I don't know, nine of working on this thing, looking at on and off all week, I had about four squares left, four numbers. It was not a normal Sudoku. There was a twist to it that is too hard to describe. But it had very minimal information. I finally got it after banging my head against this wall for this thing. I had four squares left, and I realized I made a mistake. And I had to start the fuck over. And, oh, it's it went a lot faster. I eventually did it, but, hey. oh, my God, that feeling where I was like, yeah, I finally got it. I was looking at just the right place. I finally got it, and I can move on. And then to see two sixes in the same row, oh, fuck you, six. So that's my lemon, is I spent a lot of time on this really brilliant puzzle that he wrote, which was very fun, but oh, that feeling of, I'm almost done, wait, nope. Daddy was not a happy camper. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good lemon, Paul. Yeah, I'm bored of 24-hour news now. We don't need it. That was all I was going to really say. I liked it when news came once or twice a day at certain times, you know, 6 or 10 or in the morning. I liked it. It was considered, calculated, you know, reviewed, edited, put up with some thought behind it. I think it was better for mental health. Very, very much so. And I think you could easily remove 24-hour rolling news now and still got your Twitter and your Facebook for your outlets of, carrying on talking, whatever you need to say, just to keep your show running past 
the hour mark you need to clock off the day before another presenter comes on with a bunch of producers who also have to think about things to say for the next three or four hours. That's desperate and they look for whatever's going to be popular with angry people on Twitter. Yeah. It's one of those things where like if you put the information that we consume in one day into the brain of like a man from the 1800s, like his brain would release a chemical that would kill him instantly. Yeah. Like we're not <laughs> built for this much information. Self-preservation. Yeah. I work on a lot of overnight radio shows that do uh, talk stuff where people call up and they talk to the presenter about whatever's topical. It's just been weird that for, in the UK, for the past, what, four years, it's been tough to find subjects that wasn't Brexit. Oh, yeah. Every other week it was Brexit. And I, I remember I was sitting with a presenter and going, I would kill for some different news. And then literally the next week the pandemic happened and then nothing but pandemic oh. news. <laughs> was. And now I'm at the stage where, oh, I could really do with a bit of Brexit news to break this up just to keep things interesting. <laughs> just a little variety. But what's been interesting about it is that it's both an annoyance to me but also I, I kind of understand that it's necessary. Is that a lot of people call up and the audience that call up are usually people in their 50s, a lot older, maybe really elderly. And sometimes the only company they have is that presenter on a late night talk radio station at one in the morning, yeah. talking to them or talking about things they're interested in. And when the pandemic broke out, there's a lot of really panicked old people it's really complicated about going to the politics of the BBC and how they wanted to close down a lot of local stations and blah, 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 and funnel it all through Five Live or BBC London. Long story short, it eventually became I was producing the national talk overnight station from London where everyone in the UK was calling. And it was just overwhelming. So many people didn't know anything, but they would always be watching the news. So they knew what was going on but they literally didn't know how to translate that into facts that worked for them. Amazing. And so you've got this situation where you're providing a service, but then you're also hearing a lot of really batshit crazy stuff from old people who don't know how science work. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's tough because a lot of frightened people, but also a lot of really selfish, horrible people who are like, this doesn't affect me. I don't care. I'm going to crack on and do what it, I always do. Yeah. Love it. I cannot relate to people who watch TV news regularly. It's so foreign to me now. I mean, I can relate to people who are constantly refreshing Twitter feeds. <laughs> yeah, as if that's arguably more harmful. It'd be less disturbing than if you just had someone standing outside your window stabbing pets. <laughs> yeah, screaming news at you all the time. <laughs> anyway, Layton. My lemon is sort of like a half lemon. So my grandparents sent me a really, really lovely Christmas gift, which was a huge, huge box of C's candies. So like, mm. like four of the samplers and like a bag of chocolate balls and lollipops and peanut brittle and stuff, which is so sweet and considerate. I love getting food for a gift. The lemon is that I cannot have this shit in my home. This, <laughs> it, this is a nightmare. Like my sleep schedule is fucked. I'm on medication that like is an appetite stimulant is one of the side Oof. effects. So I'm like, hmm, it's 10 p.m. Sounds like a great time to eat a bunch of chocolate. And then I'm up at 4 a.m. Like barfing chocolate. God damn it. God damn it. Not even that. Just being like, why do I, my teeth are fuzzy. Why do I do this to myself? <laughs> <sighs> so yeah, that's my line. Cool. So let's move into peaches. Who wants to do some peaches? I have some very exciting things I can discuss. Very exciting. Paul has been so gracious with his time. I'm going to get through these pretty fast. May I'm pretty good for time. Well, then I will take my time. Yeah, to at least talk slower. <laughs> Come on, he's still hard. Like, we got to get there. Yeah, I am. I'm foaming. 
Yeah, that's a thing a dick does. It follows. <laughs> well, mine does. That's all I can say. Yeah. <laughs> mine looks like a rabid dog right now. Just rabid dick. <laughs> Everything is normal. That's the answer. Everything is normal. So, first speech number one. A few months ago now, Rachel bought a snail habitat, and then we realized we have no place nearby to catch snails. So, she went online to buy some snails and found them. For sale on Etsy, which, okay. Oh, some vintage handcrafted snails? <laughs> they show up at our house, and they have been shipped from Greece. There was Greek postage on it. It was clearly from Greece. What? Three little snails, about an inch big each. You, did you know snails basically, I don't know if it's called hibernation or whatever, but they can basically go to sleep for like years at a time if it's too dry. Huh. And then, so she put them in this little pudding cup, basically, with some holes in it so they can breathe. And they like some uh, wrap over the top. They form a little membrane over the openings of their shells to keep in moisture. And then you peel that little membrane off and you put them in a little pool of water. And these fuckers woke up right away and started snailing around. <laughs> and we put them in our little snail habitat. And Audrey lost her fucking mind. <laughs> it was the greatest thing she has ever seen. Excellent. She was glued to this snail habitat. We fed him some little carrots and some lettuce. She watched these snails for like three hours. And <laughs> it was, and they're really, you know, snails are cute. I love the little snails. She named them Love to Eat, Look Around, and Slowpoke. <laughs> because Slowpoke took a while to wake up. This is God-tier naming. Right? Uh, Slowpoke took so long to wake up that we were worried that Slowpoke might not be with us anymore. <laughs> but no, Slowpoke did wake up. And now we have snails. Brian, will you send me some like close-ups of these snails? Because I still want to draw that thing for Audrey and I would love to put snails in it. Oh, yes. Because you sent me that lovely picture of Audrey staring intently at the tank, which made me very happy. Yeah, she was so, that kid was so into it. I got to say, these snails, one day in, they are a better pet by any metric than my dog. <laughs> <laughs> Smarter? They are definitely smarter than this idiot dog that I own. <laughs> um, and the other thing about snails is if they die, they die. And it's not super sad. Whereas with the dog, it's a whole deal. And yeah, I don't mean yeah. to sound insensitive, but it's like, you know, it's, it's very sad when a pet dies. Uh, yeah. But with these snails, it's like, well, let's get some more snails. Yeah. yeah, when I was a kid, me and my friends had a lot of hermit crabs. Like, I loved having hermit crabs because so I lived in a beach town. And when you go to, like, a Wings or any of those other big stores that sell, like, towels and whatnot, they always have a fuck ton of hermit crabs. And I just loved having hermit crabs. I love the feeling of them crawling on your little hand. But yep. I will say, despite it not being as sad as if, like, a quote-unquote, quote-quote-quote-quote-unquote, uh, like, real <laughs> pet dies, it is very traumatic to go to pick up your friend and then their shitty little body falls out of the shell and you see what the ass of a Jeez. hermit crab looks like, Aww. which is not pretty. Whenever a pet dies, it's sad. Somehow when they're invertebrates, it's a little better. <laughs> Good peach. Thank you. Thank you very much. Peach number two, real fast. I found a new cookie recipe. Audrey's taking cooking classes online with her now former kindergarten teacher. And this woman gave us a chocolate chip cookie recipe, which fucking rules. And I didn't know it before. And I have been eating chocolate chip cookies and very much enjoying them. So that's been fun. Is there anything special about the recipe that makes it stand out? You know what? There is. 
but Audrey made me promise that I wouldn't tell you. <gasps> okay. Oh, because it's a secret ingredient. It's people. <laughs> Maybe I can hint at it. It rhymes with Manila Dudding Picks. Hmm. Uh. Can you figure it out? Interesting. So I didn't tell you, but I strongly hinted at it. <laughs> at least you didn't say Mananis Oil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good cookie recipe. It's very good. I like it a lot. My third peach actually happened right before we started taping. Audrey and Rachel were sitting down at lunch, and Rachel had a thermos of whatever she was drinking next to her while she was eating her lunch. It was at like 11.30 a.m., and Audrey pointed to the thermos and said, Mommy, is that alcohol? <laughs> and... <laughs> I loved it, and Rachel got sad. <laughs> but it was so funny. Mommy, is that alcohol? And Rachel was like, it's 11.30 a.m. This is in a thermos, and I've been drinking it for hours. And I was like, yeah, answer the question. Yeah, what was in the thermos? It was water. Mm -hmm. uh... The real genesis of this is that Audrey knows that she cannot drink alcohol. Call us bad parents. We don't let our six-year-old drink alcohol. And so often, if we're drinking something that she can't have, which is very few things that we drink, you know, it's basically just alcoholic drinks. Like, if we're drinking something and she says, can I have that? The answer is almost always, if it's no, the answer is almost always, oh, no, because it's alcohol. So that's probably where it came from. But just Audrey asking her mom, <laughs> you're drinking a thermos full of alcohol. At 11.30 oh. a.m.? Yeah, typical parental devious lies. I love it. My mum used to say, if you can hear the ice cream van with its chimes on coming down the street, it means it's run out of ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> that is evil. And that worked like a charm. That reminds me of something, I think I might have talked about this on the show before. One of my favorite things ever, very similar to that. This is something I heard on a show. It's not someone I know personally. Someone whose parents told them, that when you hear those chimes, that's the music truck that drives around playing music to keep everybody happy. And that's the only thing that that does. And <laughs> it might have pictures on it, but... Don't be fooled. <laughs> yeah, don't be fooled. That's just the music truck that drives around to keep everybody happy with its happy music. All-timer, as far as I'm concerned. All-timer of a parental lie to get your kid to not ask you for ice cream. Oh. So now whenever we hear the... Ice cream truck music. I just think, oh, there's the music truck. It kind of reminds me of that Morecambe and Wise gag, because in the UK is Morecambe and Wise double act, much loved from the 70s and 80s. And there's a great little scene where they're in a room and all you hear is a fire engine go past really quick. Of, nah, 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 nah. And Eric Morecambe just says, he's not going to sell many ice creams going at that speed. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I like that joke. Beautiful. Speaking of that, Paul, do you want to give us some peaches? One is... I don't know if you know this, Brian. I'm kind of into Ghostbusters, right? So as a result, I know a little bit about it. So because wow. of lockdown, back at the start, I had a lot of free time. So I decided to go online and um, I've got a Ghostbusters Lego firehouse, right? It's a beautiful thing given to me in lieu of payment. And I was completely fine with that. But I bought a, a light kit. <laughs> I bought a light kit for it. So all the lights light up and the lamps at the front and the traffic light turns on and off. Beautiful. Long story short, I kind of got obsessed and I bought a real load of Ghostbusters Lego and built it. What came in the post this week made me very happy because uh, there's a guy online who listens to my podcast and also likes the Ghostbusters stuff I do. And he goes, oh, I built a Ecto-1A 
Lego car based on the second Ghostbusters vehicle. Because there's slight differences. Uh, it's bulkier, weirder, more lights. And he showed me the picture of uh, what he built. And it was beautiful. He took the original Lego Ghostbusters car and changed it so it looked more like the one from the second film. And he goes, I'm going to send you all the bits. So he sent me all the bits I needed because I had a spare Ecto-1. What? Yeah. And he sent me Whoa. all the spare bits I need. So I'm going to make my own Lego Ecto-1A. And I'm really quite excited about that. So that's nice. That rules. It came with stickers as well. It comes with a little Ghostbusters 2 stickers and all those for hire phone number stickers and stuff. Brilliant. So I'm going to have three Ghostbusters cars now. The Ridge 84, 89, and 2016. I'm very happy with myself. I need to get out more. That's fantastic. No, I don't think you do. I think that sounds perfect. Yeah, but then I need to buy another light kit for it because it can't be left out. The Firehouse and the two other Ecto ones have light kits. If I don't get one for him, it's going to be weird. So he, I then have to fork out for that and then rebuild it. <laughs> it gets into a whole thing. So <laughs> there's that. So the second thing as well is that I'm not really a huge gamer by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I don't mind it. But recently, I've become absolutely obsessed with Among Us, and I don't know why. Oh, it's fun as fuck. I know, but I can't stop watching Let's Plays. It's like watching a soap. You see it all rolling out. You see the lies and the betrayals. And so I got it today, and I've been playing it with a few people who listen to the podcast. And it might be my new favorite thing. <laughs> I have yet to play it, and I really want to. For me, at least, it is so fucking stressful, especially if... I'm the imposter. Like, I'm not a good imposter. I had one single game where it was just, like, masterful, and then the rest of them, it was a nightmare. <laughs> That's my dream, is to be in that game, or werewolf or whatever, to be the bad guy. Oh, It suits your utter bastard capabilities. Yep, you get to lie to people to their faces, and it's acceptable. It's the best. Love it. Well, it was like, Meowch enabled my lie because he was like i've been with you the entire time like let's buddy up and then he was the last person that i killed <laughs> it was ultimate betrayal yeah fuck that guy i was like wow i didn't even have to lie or set this one up what i like about it is why i like binding of isaac which up until today has been the game i have not stopped playing since 2016 it is like the only game i've played since 2016 i've rocked up countless thousands of hours on all those games i've got a problem but what I like about it and why it's similar to Binding of Isaac is that it's fundamentally, it's a really simple game. Yeah, There's not a lot of controls, not a lot of things to do. It's basically a paranoia machine. The simple mechanics leave you a lot of leeway to play with the parameters of the game. And so you can get thousands of permutations of play out to the game without actually changing the fundamental structure of it. And it's just a beautiful, simple game. Sweet. And Peach 3. Now, oh yeah, Peach 3. All right, this is a bit of a plug, but it's still true. There's another thing I do called Digitizer. It's a channel I do with a guy called Mr. Biffo. Mr. Biffo was known very fondly in the 90s as being a video games reviewer. To be honest, he's a bit like Charlie Brooker in terms of tone and, and kind of comedy. It's very surreal. And I started working with him a few years ago. And we now co-run this channel on YouTube called Digitizer, which is basically, imagine just a bunch of old middle-aged men farting about like children and then, you know, cutting themselves and setting themselves on fire. It's really immature. But this is all a preface to say that I had a tough week last week and I was working all hours. They wanted to film this one episode out in the woods, a fake ghost hunt for our Christmas special. And I wasn't in the mood and I really nearly backed out. And then I went along with Eli and Mr. Biffo and his wife in the woods and we filmed this thing. And it was just the nicest, funnest thing I've done all year. And I'm glad I didn't back out because I really needed the laugh and the larks that I had from doing it. I, that was nice. I hope people, when they see it, enjoy it too because it's dumb as absolute fuck. But it is also funny. So I can't deny that. 
<laughs> as all the best things are, just dumb as absolute fuck. I'm all for highbrow humor and satire and smarts and wordplay. But I think if I'm going to be honest, hand on heart, I know I'm a scatological comedian. That is my bread and butter. I'm fine with that. I came to peace with that. I may as well submerge. Yeah, go for it. Hold my breath, pinch my nose and bury my head in the shit of it. That's my career. (laughs) (laughs) Words to live by. Layden, you got some peaches? I was like, I need a game on my phone that isn't, you know, me doom scrolling and ruining my mental health as, you know, competitive sport. And I play like a lot of pinball emulators on my phone, which I really enjoy. The sound is a big element of it. And I don't always have headphones. Anyway, I was like, I don't know what chess pieces do. So basically I started playing chess and infuriating, but I'm really enjoying it. Um, And Brian, we should play some chess for a minisode and you can just absolutely kick my ass. We should. I'm very bad at it, but yeah. Well, that's excellent. I'm also extremely bad at it. I say being not even a weekend, but you know. Second peach is I've found the holy grail of sweatpants. I'm a big advocate for sweatpants. And prior to now, my best pair was one that I got. Sorry, in the UK, they're referred to as sweat trousers. Oh, is that what they mean? I completely didn't understand what she was talking about then. Thank you for that. (laughs) I'm going to kill you. (laughs) Yeah, anytime. Happy to translate. But yeah, the best pair that I had gotten, I got from a yard sale that they clearly had already been used to just, you know, utter softness. The bottoms were ripped. I've had those for like a decade and the bottoms are all ripped. And I was like, I don't know if I can ever find a pair that'll top these. Um, (laughs) And I did. They're beautiful. They look acceptable in public and not like I just wandered out of a dumpster. Um, The waistband (laughs) is strong enough where if you put the phone in your pocket, they're not going to fall down. That's the crucial thing with those. That's how you know they're good. Yeah, because if you get a loose waistband, you can't put anything in the pocket and then you're, you're fucked. So I'm glad you said that because that is exactly the most important thing. That's the criteria. And it, it really just hits all those things. It's the right length. I have long legs. Often I get pants that are just too short. You know, it's the high waters look, which on sweatpants is absolutely abysmal. Anyway, so that's second peach. Uh, my third one is I continue to uh, make resin crafts. I've been making like everyone ashtrays for Christmas that are personalized. And it's just a nice thing that stops the mental screaming for a while and gives me a reason to get out of bed in the morning. So I'm like, oh boy, I get to see how badly I fucked up this piece. Um, Because you have to wait between layers. So it's like layer 24 hours, layer 24 hours, then you demold it. And it's like, ah, yes, I've ruined this entire thing. Uh, But it's nice because the ones that I ruin, I get to keep. And then all the nice ones my friends get. So that's my third peach. That's great. Dude, Paul, thank you. Thank you for being here. It's always a joy to catch up with you. Yeah, it's nice. This has been totally lovely. I'm letting this pause sit here. Let it hang. This one. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah, dude, it's so nice to spend some time with you. So thank you for taking all this time to hang out and just be a part of this. I've been meaning to ask you to be on the show for a while. So I'm glad we finally did it. No, it's been nice. You've always hopped in on my mucky podcast. So it's nice to come on yours and, you know, smear myself across it liberally. So thank you. Yeah. And talk about your erect foaming penis. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, no, lovely. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. And I'll happily come back whenever you get desperate. (laughs) Yes. You're you're our fallback position. We're already there. (laughs) Can you describe the many places that people can find you? The easiest place is my Twitter handle at 
Paul Gannon's show. From there, you can find my podcast, which is called Cheap Show, an economy comedy podcast about looking for the bargain bins of Great Britain and pulling out the treasure. So that's uh, thecheapshow.co.uk, but we're on nearly every single app and podcast app you can think of. So it's easy to find. Cheap Show, all one word. And then also Digitizer, the weird very strange show I do with Mr. Biffo. And you can just look for Digitizer on YouTube. It's that simple. That's kind of my main concerns. That's all I do. The radio stuff ain't that interesting. It's all a bit political. <laughs> I do want to recommend to people, if they want to check out any episode of Cheap Show to start, they should check out the Urine Vision one, which is a long episode, but features some judging from me. My favorite thing to do is to judge people. <laughs> and I get to do it publicly here. And it's a song contest. And as you said before, some people came up with some like legit cool shit. Yeah. So it's a funny episode and you can listen to some cool, very DIY fun music. That's lovely. Yeah. And also it's an odd show. Going in it, that episode will frighten you. Just hold on tight. And if you got through it, you'll like the rest of it. If you don't, <laughs> delete us from your web browser. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great show. It is really fun. And you and Eli individually are both very, very funny. And together, you guys are just so fun and combative. So yeah. it's, a, it's a great dynamic. <laughs> Thank you. Fabulous. Well, everyone listening, take care. Stay safe. Come hard. Uh, it's the end of the podcast. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. Leighton Night is produced by Brian Wecht, Leighton Gray, and Jarek Centeno. Follow us on Twitter at Leighton Night, on Instagram at Leighton underscore Night, or email us at LeightonKnight at gmail.com. <laughs>